grab your Bible, find the Gospel of Luke. If you didn't bring one with you this morning, there should be one in front of you, in the seat in front of you. Gospel of Luke. There is an outline in the bulletin. If you'd like to follow along on the outline, you can do that. Gospel of Luke, this morning we are in chapter 8. Our theme verse for the entire gospel is Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is a verse that is very meaningful in the stories that we're going to look at this morning. Let me just remind you a little bit of uh, where we've been in Luke. For those of you who maybe uh, are new with us this morning or it's been a while since we've been in Luke. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The first few chapters in Luke talk about the word came. How did he come? He came to do something. Well, how did that happen? And the first few chapters in Luke talk about the coming of the Son of Man. We know that as the Christmas story, and you find it in the first couple of chapters of Luke's gospel. The next few chapters in the gospel of Luke focus on the identity of the Son of Man. So the first few chapters say, how did he come? This next group of chapters, the ones that we're in right now, say, well, who is he? The Son of Man came to do something. We know how he came. That's the Christmas story. But who is this guy, Jesus? What am I to believe about who he is and his identity? And this section of Luke that we're in talks about that. And we're sort of building a description, or you could say building a profile for who Jesus is. Who is the Son of Man? And it's fascinating that in our passage this morning, Luke 8, 22 to 39, at one point the disciples just asked that question openly. Who is this? That's kind of a strange question for somebody that you're following around. Who is this guy? They're, they don't even have a category for it. Who is the Son of Man? And then it's fascinating that just a page turn later, a paragraph later, we find demons saying exactly who he is. The disciples scratching their heads, who is this guy? And the demons saying, this is who he is. All in this section of Luke that are describing for us the identity of the Son of Man. Now, before we jump in and read the passage, let me give you what I think is the big idea of these verses that we're about to look at. The big idea of this passage is this. Jesus seeking and saving the lost has a personal dimension. It has a corporate dimension. And it has a cosmic dimension. Okay? Jesus seeking and saving the lost has a personal dimension, number one. It has a corporate dimension, number two. And it has a cosmic dimension, number three. It is amazingly good news that there is a personal dimension to Jesus coming to seek, a, seek us and save us. What I mean by that is on the cross, Jesus took your place and he took your punishment he died bearing the wrath of God that should have fallen on you that is personal he took your place now sometimes we get a little bit confused my guess is if you've been in church very long you've heard a, a pastor at some point say something like this remember this is not your pastor speaking this is some other pastor speaking he says something like this oh you know Jesus he just he, he just, he loves you so much. He would have died for you if it was only for you. If it was just for you, he would have taken your place. What a, yes, it is personal. He really did take your place. But I'm going to suggest to you that that's just not a very helpful way to think about the cross. It's just speculation. Because it's not just personal, it's also 
corporate. He didn't just die for you. That's the reality. Would he have? I don't know. What I do know is that he didn't. He died for you personally as a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, he took your place, but he also died for y'all, for us, for the church. And we've been talking about that in our previous series where we talked about I am a church member. What does it mean to be a church member? It means, in part, treasuring church membership because we understand that Jesus purchased the church, not just you, the church, not this building, the church with his blood. Mark 9, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Acts 20, 28. Paul talking to the the leaders in the church in Ephesus when he leaves and he says to them, take care, watch over this flock because Jesus bought it. This flock, this church, this body, he paid for it with his blood. So on the one hand, there's a personal dimension, right? You and Jesus are involved, but it's not just you and Jesus, it's bigger than that. It's Jesus in his church, he bought the church, and if you can have a spot for this in your brain without thinking I'm too crazy, it's even bigger than the church, Because when I say Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, I mean he came to seek and to save all that was lost in the fall. And to put things, all things, back right the way God intended them to be. And so you sort of get your thinking pad out and you say, well, what did we lose in the fall? Just a few thoughts. We lost people. We lost our relationship with God. We lost life. We lost relationships with other people. We lost order in nature, right? Chaos is introduced. We lose peace. We lose hope. We lose all kinds of stuff in Genesis 3. And Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost, it does involve you as an individual, but it also involves us as a church. And it's even bigger than that. It's Jesus coming to save and to set right all that has gone wrong because of sin, right? So there is a personal dimension There's a corporate dimension, and there is a cosmic dimension. And I think in these two stories, you see all of those play out in different ways. And so I hope it's plain to you as we read through this story and talk about it. Look in your Bible, and let's just read. Luke 8, chapter uh, chapter 8, verse 22. We're going to read to verse 39. The Word of God says this. One day he got in a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. Obviously, we're talking about Jesus. A windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in danger. And they went and they woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out onto land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, he fell down before him, And he said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, 
had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled And they told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them for they were seized with great Fear, so he got into the boat and returned. The man with man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word and we want to come humbly. Father, we come expectantly, believing that these words are true, believing that your word has power. And Father, just as you have put breath in our lungs so that we can sing to you, we pray that you would put in our minds and our hearts an understanding and a a willingness to accept and to respond to your word this morning. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two pretty simple stories, really, not complicated. But as I read them this week, there were some questions that came to mind. Lots of questions, and I narrowed it down to five, and I think they're good questions. And you notice I didn't give you any blanks for these questions. And what I'm saying there is, I'm going to give you what I think are the answers. But these are tricky questions. And these are things you really kind of have to wrestle around with in your mind and try to make sense of. And so we're going to walk through the passage, asking some of these questions, trying to give some answers... And then we'll sum it up at the end. It starts with Jesus, and he sends his crew across, in a boat, across the Sea of Galilee. So here's the Sea of Galilee. Picture on the left is from Google Earth. If you want to know what it looks like from space, that's it. Okay, Sea of Galilee. And uh, over on the right is the sea, one part of the sea, and uh, some cliffs or some hills, or you could call them small mountains, around the sea. This is typical around the Sea of Galilee. The topography that you see is what you would expect. And I know nothing about weather, but people who know things about weather say that this is a perfect place for storms to pop up quickly and then to go away quickly. And the wind comes rushing down these hills and uh, combines with the warm air and the cool air. Whatever happens, it happens. And storms just pop up on this lake all the time. Now you got to remember that these guys were fishermen, and so they were used to being on this lake, and they were used to these kinds of storms, but Luke describes this storm as pretty serious because he says they were filling with water. He doesn't mean they were drinking water. He means the boat is filling with water, and they're thinking, we're going to die. The reality is, sometimes the storms that pop up on the Sea of Galilee have hurricane-force winds, okay? Serious storms. So I thought about hurricanes this week. I thought about uh, my wife. 
when I thought about hurricanes. <laughs> a couple years ago, we went to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. We were so excited, 10 years marriage, that's pretty good. And so we said, let's take a trip, leave the kids at home. We planned this big trip. We went to Cancun, and uh, it was great. Stayed at an awesome resort. Then I mentioned we had no kids. 10-year anniversary is great. Only one problem. We got married during hurricane season. So there we are in Cancun, and Hurricane Ernesto comes right over the top of our hotel. I hate hurricanes. That's the only one I've been in. I hate all of them. I don't like them. Beach was closed. Couldn't even, couldn't even walk on the beach. They had the whole thing roped off. It's miserable. But here's these guys in the boat, right? I don't know if it was hurricane force winds. I know it was a serious enough storm that seasoned fishermen together. Seasoned fishermen don't like to sound like wimps. You ever been fishing with guys who really know how to fish? It doesn't matter how scared or how bad things are going or whatever. They want to sound like they're in control. They know what's going on. Oh, you can't catch. No one could catch fish. This is to be expected. Oh, this wind isn't that bad. We can make it back. Oh, it's not that cold. We'll stay out here. These guys are screaming like little kids. We're going to die. We are going to die. It was a serious storm. And so I look at this, and the first question I have is, in the middle of all of it, Jesus is asleep. These guys think they're about to die. Jesus is taking a nap. Question one, why was Jesus sleeping on the boat in the middle of the storm? There's not really a specific answer given in the passage. So again, I, I didn't give you a blank. But I think the only thing you can surmise or deduce here is that he was exhausted. That's the only thing I can come up with. He'd been preaching. He'd been teaching. He'd been walking around. He'd been healing people. He'd been casting out demons. Uh, he was very, very popular, and so there were a lot of demands on his life and demands on his time. And the bottom line is he was really tired. And you look at this and you're reminded Jesus was really man. He's not like God walking around in a man suit pretending to be man. He was God who really became man. And he's exhausted. And so he lays down, and he's sleeping on the boat, and he's sleeping in the storm, and the disciples say, hey, hey, we're, we're going to die, we're going to die, wake up. And Jesus gives them a very mild rebuke, but it's a rebuke. He gets up, and first he rebukes the wind and the waves, and he tells them to stop, and they stop. And then secondly, he rebukes the disciples and he says what? Where's your faith? Where is your faith? And the disciples hear that question and all they can come up with is, who are we walking around with? Did you see that? That was serious storm. That was serious wind. The rain was really filling the boat up and the waves were really crashing over the edges. And he just told it to quit and it quit. Who is this that the wind and the waves obey? Here's my second question, and I think this is a trickier question. Why were the disciples so amazed that Jesus could control the weather? Why were they so amazed? Jesus gives them this rebuke, and he says, where is your faith? And what he's saying is, come on, guys, seriously? You, you don't think I can handle this? And so I just went back in Luke and I looked up some of the things the disciples have seen Jesus do. They saw Jesus bring in a miraculous catch of fish when he first called some of these guys to follow him. Remember that? Nets were breaking. It was a miracle. They'd fished all night. They saw that. 
they also saw Jesus with an angry mob in Nazareth ready to kill him just pass through their midst. And we've talked about that story. I have no idea what happened there. But they saw that. They saw a mob of people ready to murder Jesus and he just walked right through the middle of them. They saw Jesus cast a demon out of a man in the synagogue. Remember Jesus is preaching and the man pops up and he says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God and Jesus cast the demon out of him immediately. They saw that. They saw Jesus heal a leper. They saw Jesus heal a heal a paralytic. They saw Jesus heal a man whose hand was crippled. They saw Jesus heal the servant of a centurion, and they saw Jesus raise the widow's son from the dead up to this point. They've seen all that with their eyes, and here they are. Jesus does something else amazing, and what do they say? They say, who is this guy? They're amazed that someone would be able to do this, and so the question is, why did that amaze them? They had seen some pretty amazing stuff, The dead brought back to life. The fish in the net. And they're amazed that he can control nature. I have two guesses. Number one, these guys are a lot like we are, meaning they're dense spiritually. They're just slow to get it, right? You kind of get this impression when you read through the Gospels. They just don't get it all the way through. And it's easy for us to throw rocks at these guys in the Gospel of Luke and say, you idiots, you didn't. Come on, pay attention. Were you not looking when the fish jumped in the net? Were you not paying attention when that dead boy got back up? Come on. We're pretty dense too, if we're honest. So these guys are a lot like us. That's one thing that rolls through my mind. Here's another thing that rolls through my mind. I think these guys knew their Old Testament. I think they knew it better than we do. And they knew... That in the Old Testament, time and time and time again, God is described as the only one who can control the elements. And I could give you all kinds of verses for this. Let me just give you a few from the book of Psalms, okay? Jot these down. You can look them up later. 65, 5 to 7, 89, 9, 106, 9. 107, 23 to 29. All of these, look, this is a small sample. All of them say basically this, God and God alone controls the weather. He doesn't share that right with anyone else. The idols can't do it. Man can't do it. Only God can do it. And so you come back to the question, you say, why were the disciples so amazed that Jesus could control the weather? Look, this is a lot for these guys to take in. On the one hand, they see Jesus taking a nap because he's tired. That's the only answer I can come up with. He's really tired. He's exhausted. He's sleeping in the middle of a storm, through the storm. He's a man. And then they see him wake up from his nap and control the weather. Now, in my mind, people who need to take naps are probably not going to be able to control the weather. And people who can control the weather probably don't need a lot of naps. And they're trying to put this together, and the question they come up with is a pretty good question. Let's not be too hard on them. Who is this guy? Are you serious right now? He's so tired he can't wake up for the storm, and then he just tells the storm to go away. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So they cross the lake. They get to the other side of the lake, and immediately they're met by a man who is demon possessed. And this to me is just, I think Luke has a good sense of humor, right? He didn't have to include these details the way he did, but he did, and I think it's funny. Here's the disciples getting off the boat, looking at each other, saying under their breath, who is this guy? We should have, we should have done a background check. We should have vetted this guy more carefully. This is really weird. This is, who is it? 
Who is it? Here come the demons to tell you. The man with the demons runs right up to him. You know the only person in the Gospels, the only people in the Gospels who always know who Jesus is when he shows up? Demons. They always know. And the guy runs up to Jesus and he falls down and he basically says, I know who you are. Please don't torture me. Please don't torment me. They know that he has the right to do that and they're begging, please don't torment me. The man himself is being tormented, you might take note. He lives alone. He doesn't wear clothing. He can't be bound with chains. He lives in a cemetery. He is in every way, shape, or form, in every conceivable fashion, a social pariah. He is under true and genuine torment. And the demons tormenting him come before Jesus and have the nerve to say, please don't torment us. I'm guessing that we live in North America. Most of you have never encountered anybody who was genuinely demon-possessed. I don't know that I have either, but there has been one time in my life where I was around an individual and the thought popped into my mind almost instantly. One of two things is true. Either this guy is really stoned out of his mind or he's possessed by demons. And I'll be honest enough to tell you, he could have just been on drugs. But it was one of those two, I guarantee it. And can I tell you what I felt in that situation? A little bit of fear. To be around someone that you genuinely thought they might be demon-possessed. So here's Jesus, the napper, just telling the wind and the waves to be quiet. And here comes a demon-possessed man running straight for him. Meets him immediately. He's naked. Do you know what that word means in the Bible? It means he was naked. And he runs up to Jesus. This is a guy who cannot be bound with chains, who lives in the tombs. Other Gospels tell us he used to cut himself, used to injure himself, so he looks terrible. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs, and he falls down in front of Jesus. Jesus doesn't even flinch. You can just almost picture it. He's just standing there, just waiting for the guy to get there. And he falls down on his knees. Please don't torment me. I know who you are. You're the Son of God. Please don't torment me. Everyone is terrified. Mark tells us in his gospel that the herd of pigs over here is 2,000 strong. Luke just says it was a big herd. Okay? There's a lot of pigs right over here. And the man with the demon looks at Jesus and he says, this is so weird. Admit it. It's weird. Please don't cast the demons out of us. Can we go into the pigs instead? Please. And for some reason, Jesus talks back to the demon, and they have this back and forth about his name and different stuff, and eventually Jesus gives them permission when they're begging to go into these pigs. The demons go into the pigs, the pigs go off the cliff, the pigs die in the sea. That's weird, right? Right? Here's a question, just one of many. Why did Jesus let the demons negotiate their move to the pigs? Why? Let me tell you some onlys here, okay? This is the only exorcism story in the Bible that involves multiple demons in one person at one time. 
is the only exorcism story in the Bible where Jesus has a conversation with the demons. Usually he just says, scat, and they scat. There's a back and forth. It's the only demon possession story in the Bible where the demons enter animals and then something really bad happens, right? This is an odd, odd story. And you've got to wrestle with this. Why did Jesus do this? Let me give you some possibilities I came across this week. There's a guy named Bertrand Russell. You ever heard of this guy? Bertrand Russell. He lived a long time ago. And uh, every picture I found of him online, he had a, a pipe in his mouth. So that wasn't just cherry-picked. I guess he liked to smoke a pipe. He was an atheist. He did not believe in God. And he wrote a book a long time ago, and the book was titled, this is very subtle, Why I'm Not a Christian. Okay? And in the book, I haven't read it, but I've read about it this last week. I did a little digging on it. A bunch of lousy reasons why he's not a Christian. Stupid stuff. One of them is kind of interesting. One of the reasons famed philosopher, atheist Bertrand Russell was not a Christian is this story about the demons and the pigs. That story is in the book. And he says, listen, you're telling me that you want me to follow and believe and love and worship a guy who would take a bunch of demons from a guy and send them into an innocent bunch of pigs knowing that the poor pigs are going to run over the cliff and die and the men who owned the 2,000 pigs, that's a lot of pigs. Those men are going to be out and Jesus doesn't offer to pay them back. Seriously? You want me to believe in that guy? I'm out. I don't believe. One reason why I'm not a Christian. Now can I be honest with you? There's other people who do claim to be Christians who are still embarrassed by this story. Because it's a weird story. Here's one person, William Barclay. Okay? William Barclay was a, a liberal Christian theologian. And by liberal, I don't mean Democrat. I mean liberal in theological views. He's a liberal Christian theologian. And in his commentaries, I study his commentaries every week. Because sometimes he says some things and I think, that is that is dead on brilliant. I never connected those dots. And then sometimes he says things that make me say, you are the biggest bonehead that I've ever read in my entire life. He doesn't believe in any miracles. No miracles. He explains very carefully away every miracle story in the Gospels. And so I was curious to see, <laughs> how are you going to explain this one? The demons and the man and the chains and and the pigs and the over the edge and all this stuff. Here's, here's Williams Barclay, William Barclay's explanation. You ready? He says, the man really believed he was possessed by a demon. He really thought he had demons in him. Okay? We know that he was mental because there is no such thing as demons. But he really had this conviction that he was demon possessed. Enter Jesus. Jesus knows a lot of stuff. So Jesus isn't fooled that this man has demons in him. Jesus knows better. But how are you going to try to reason with a crazy person? Right? It doesn't work. And so he says, as Jesus is standing there trying to figure out what to do, the guy's screaming and making a commotion, and he spooks the herd of pigs. And the pigs stampede over the cliff, and the pigs die in the water. And here's opportunistic Jesus over here who says, ha, I got it. I'm going to trick him. And he tells the guy, hey, dude, I just sent those demons into the pigs. They're not with you anymore. Look, that's what happens. The demons left you. They went into the pigs. And Barclay says, the story was so convincing in the setting and how it all happened that the man, just the light bulb goes off and he says, huh, demons are gone. I, 
They went in the pigs. Well, can I have some clothes? That's Barclay's explanation. So I'm just giving you options this morning, okay? You can go with Mr. Russell, and you can say this story is reason not to follow Jesus. Or you can go with Mr. Barclay, and you can say it's just sort of pre-scientific, superstitious nonsense, and Jesus knew better, but he's just playing along with their game, and he was opportunistic, found a way to convince this man that he was healed. Or you can take the story seriously for what it says. And you're going to remind yourself that the guy writing this story is not some superstitious, uneducated hick. He's a trained physician. He's not quick to believe just anything. And he writes this story down just like Mark writes it down. And they really believe that this happened. And so you come back to this question. Why did Jesus let the demons negotiate their move into the herd of pigs? You ready for my answer? I have no idea. There's a lot of suggestions and explanations and this and that and the other. And I I had a big list of them and I thought we could go through the list. Listen, I, I don't know. I don't know. I have no clue why Jesus did this sort of thing here and only here, not in any other stories that we know about. Here's what I do know. You ready? These are the most famous pigs that ever lived. You say, what about the three little pigs? No, these guys were around way before the three little pigs. And these pigs lived and died to display the power and the glory of Jesus. Can we agree on that? In their life and their death, they're pointing people to the power and the glory of Jesus. And they're helping to answer the question that the disciples are asking. Who is this man? And these pigs are telling us, this is the man who has control over the demons. That's who he is. They lived and they died to point people to Jesus and to show his glory. They also are a picture, right? They're a preview of the judgment awaiting these demons one day. Sometimes we have in our minds that hell is a place where Satan and the demons are in charge and if you end up there, they're going to torture you. Wrong. Hell is a place where people who don't know Jesus will spend eternity, but where Satan and his demons are also spending eternity, separated from Jesus, being punished for their rebellion. They're not running anything down there. And these pigs give a small preview of what awaits them in the future when they go to the abyss. So the pigs go over the cliff. The folks go back to town. They tell everybody what happened. Everybody comes out. They see the man, and Luke says he is now clothed. And he is sitting down with Jesus, and he is in his right mind. And everyone who sees it is terrified. And here's another mind boggler. They beg Jesus to leave. Please go away. Go back where you came from. Here's the next question. Why did the people of this region beg Jesus to leave their town? Luke says that they were terrified. They were afraid. You say, what were they afraid of? Maybe some people say they were afraid that they would lose more pigs. Maybe they thought the rest of their herds were about to go take a swim. Some people say, no, they were were just afraid of Jesus. Was somebody with that much power? They'd never encountered anything like that. They were so terrified. 
I don't really know how to make sense of this other than to say they begged Jesus to leave and I think what you have here is a picture of the parable we talked about last week. You remember the farmer sowing the seed and some of the seed, the first one, remember, falls on the path. And it's not that the seed is lacking in power, it's just that it falls on a hard heart. And Satan is involved in deception in blinding the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And they see this display of Jesus' power. And they have the opportunity to sit at his feet with the man who had been possessed by the demon and to listen to him and to ask him questions. And instead, all that these people from town can come up with is, will you please go away? Please leave. And Jesus gives them what they asked for. He packs up and he leaves. And as he's leaving, it's now turn, or now it's time for the man who was possessed by a demon to beg, right? A lot of begging going on in this passage. The disciples begging Jesus to wake up, and the demons begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss, and the people begging Jesus to leave their town, and now the man comes and he begs Jesus, and what he says is, please let me go with you. I am begging. Think about this. He's not just saying, hey, can I come? He's begging Jesus, please let me come with you. And Jesus says what? No. Why don't you stay here? Go back home and tell everybody what God's done for you. This is my last question. Why did Jesus tell the demoniac to stay home instead of following him? From the perspective of the man, Jesus had something for him to do, and it was not following him around with the disciples and the women who were supporting him. He had a different job for him. Jesus has different jobs for different people. Jesus has something for you to do that is not for me to do. Jesus has things for me to do that are not for you to do. And Jesus just tells the guy, look, that's not what I need you to do. What I need you to do is go home and tell all the people you know what God has done for you. That's from the perspective of the man. But look at it from the perspective of the city, of the people from town. They just begged the sinless son of God to leave and never come back. And Jesus says, okay, I'll leave. And as far as we know in the Gospels, he never goes back. Jesus never visits this place again. But he doesn't leave them without a witness. And even as he leaves, and he knows that he's not coming back, he's saying to these people, even in your hardness of heart, I'm going to show you grace. And I'm leaving, but I'm going to leave someone here who can tell you and remind you about what, I, what I've done and who I am and the power that I have. And that man was a reminder. Even though Jesus was gone and he never came back, they had a reminder. Every day in town they saw this guy. They thought, Jesus did that. Jesus did that. That happened when Jesus was here. Look how different this guy is. He's totally, his life has completely changed in every way. And Jesus is the only answer for that. So he doesn't leave these people without a witness. Here's the main question in the passage, just to try to sum up these stories. Who is this man? That's the question driving this section. That's the question driving this passage. Here's a couple of answers. Number one, Jesus created nature. He's the creator. Jesus now controls nature. He's the sovereign one who rules it all. And Jesus will cleanse nature. And I hope you understand what I'm saying there. He's the creator who made it in the beginning. He's the one who rules over it even now. And he's the one in coming to seek and save the lost. Yes, he came to seek you as an individual and his blood purchased us as a church. But he's also fixing and finding and restoring everything that was lost in the fall. 
and you get one small preview of an out-of-control, chaotic storm, and Jesus speaks into it, and he says what? Stop it. And it's calm. And there's peace. And it's a picture of what Jesus is going to do to all of creation and all of nature one day. He created nature. He controls nature. He will cleanse nature. What about the demons? Well, he created the demons. He made them. He controls them now, and he will crush them. You got to be careful here. You got to remind yourself that he did not create them as demons, he created them as angelic beings. But even in their rebellion, they cannot escape the fact, as much as they hate it, they can never escape the fact that Jesus is their creator. And so when they encounter him, when they see him on the earth, they say over and over and over again, we know who you are. Everyone else is confused. We know exactly who you are. Please don't torment us because they know that one day he will crush them. The Bible talks about that in several places in the New Testament, that one day this satanic, demonic rebellion will be squelched. Every knee, on the earth, above the earth, below the earth, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And it will bring glory to the Father. Some will do it willingly and joyfully. Some will do it being forced into submission. But all of them will bow. Who is Jesus? He's the one who created nature, who controls nature who's in the process of cleansing nature. He's the one who created the demons, all things. He controls the demons now, and he will crush the demons one day in the future. What do you do? How do you respond? Three simple suggestions straight out of the text. Number one, fear. Fear. Luke weaves this story together in a great way. (laughs) And he talks about the disciples when the storm is raging, and they are afraid. They're terrified. And then he goes out of his way to say, it's all calm, everything's quiet, and they're terrified. The object of their fear has changed, but they're still very much afraid. And he describes these townspeople. These people were terrified of this demoniac. You would be too if there was a naked man running around town that you couldn't bind with chains cutting himself, living out at the cemetery. You'd be afraid to go to a funeral. They're fearful. And then they see the man clothed, sitting with Jesus in his right mind. Everything's good. And the people look at it, and they're afraid. The object object of their fear has again changed, but they are still very much afraid. Listen, I, I talk to you about this over and over in the Gospel of Luke. Do not try to domesticate Jesus. Do not try to bring him down to your level where you can fully wrap your arms around him or or control him or think you've got him figured out. Be afraid. Be fearful. Number two, believe. Have faith. And this is Jesus' question to the, the guys in the boat. Where's your faith? After everything that you've seen, where is your faith? And you sit here this morning and you say, yeah, but you know, Those guys saw all that stuff. They should have believed. I haven't seen any of that stuff. 
it's a lot harder for me to believe. And I think if the disciples could enter that conversation, the disciples would say, look, you're on the other side of the cross. You have the New Testament to explain to you everything that Jesus did in living and dying for you, in raising, rising from the dead, and all the great things he did in the church. You have church history to look at. The gates of hell have not prevailed against the church despite Satan's attempt to destroy it at every turn. What more do you need to see to believe? And we look at those guys and we say, man, if I had seen that stuff, then I could believe. And I think they would look at us and say, man, if I had this, then I could believe. And so the question very simply is, where is your faith? Do you believe? The last thing you need to do is this, tell. Tell. The 12 eventually get sent out to tell the world. That's what Jesus had for them to do. The man who Jesus healed and and cast these demons out of him, he was sent to tell his family and his people in his hometown. He was never sent to India. He never went on a mission trip to Kenya. He never did any of those things. That was not what God had for him to do. But he was still expected to tell. I have no idea what God's specific plan is for you in your life. I don't know if he wants you to pack up, sell everything you have and go to Kenya. I don't know if he wants you to to trade in the farm and move to China. I don't know if he wants you to stay right here and live in Odessa and keep your job and be a good mom or be a good oil field worker or be a good teacher or a good nurse or whatever it is you do. Whether you go or you stay, Jesus is saying to you, tell. Tell them who I am. Tell them everything that God has done for you. Open your mouth whether you go across the street or around the world and tell somebody what God has done. Let me pray for you, and then we'll worship. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we look at these stories, and Father, I know that I look at them, and my mind just doesn't have a category for some of the things that we read. And we're so familiar with these stories that sometimes we forget and we fail to see what, what's actually happening. But Father, these are amazing stories. And there is part of us that longs for the opportunity to walk on this earth with Jesus and to have witnessed these things firsthand. But Father, we're grateful that we have something more sure and more certain than experience, and that's the written word of God. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to receive, ears to hear. Father, let us not be like these people in this village that encountered Jesus in a real way and begged him to leave. Father, we want to tremble before you. We want to see Jesus in all his glory, not brought down to our level. We want to be people who have faith and who believe and trust. And Father, we want to be bold in telling As we stand here, as we sit here this morning, we acknowledge that we need your help for all of those things to happen. And so we look to you to do a work in our life, and we ask you to make us into the kind of people, into the kind of church that you would have us to be. We ask for these things in Jesus.